Welcome, everyone. Um, we appreciate all of you coming out on a holiday weekend to be with us as we begin this exploration um, at the end of life. We have ground to cover, and we're learning with you what that ground is. And we're very grateful to Rachel, who I will more formally introduce, for helping us to initiate this conversation. We know that there is much to be said. There is fear, there is mystery, there is misunderstanding, there is interest, so much in what we know and don't know around the end of life. And so as we begin this exploration, we will do talks for uh, every Sunday, I'm, I'm sorry, the first Sunday of every month for the next six months to begin to have a dialogue with you and with others about what it is that needs to be said, what it is that is asking to be done, and ways that we here at Commonweal might be able to be helpful in advancing that dialogue. So thank you again for coming out and being a part of this. And now I am very happy to introduce Rachel Naomi Remen to you. Rachel, among other things, is a storyteller. She is a teacher. She is a, a physician. She is a guide. She is a sage. And she is a friend. She is extraordinary in the work that she does and in her human touch. Rachel uh, is the director of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness here at Commonweal, which works with physicians and other health providers in both their early informative years as medical students, and then later in the practice of medicine too, and pharmacy and nursing, to help both capture and hold meaning and wholeness in the practice of medicine. And she is world-renowned for this work, for her two books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, and is known to us here at Commonweal as the, our heart in every way. So I would like to introduce to you Rachel Naomi Remen, who is going to help us with a dialogue. We intend for this to be somewhat informal, welcome you to engage with us both during this process and beyond, and Rachel will lead us through that. So if I may introduce to you, Rachel. I wanted to say uh, how really pleased I am to be here and also ask you the question that I always have to ask people if I'm talking to more than one person at a time, which is, can you hear me in the back? I am very, very soft-spoken. Can you hear me? Yeah, oh, wonderful, wonderful. We just diddle with this thing here. Ah, here we are. So, um, I'm delighted to, to be here to talk, about, um, to talk about death, to talk about things that we often don't talk about. And I'd like to do this sort of like um, story hour at the public library, you know, in the, in the children's part of the public library. I'd like to read 
um, some stories to you, some poems to you. When Michael invited me to do this, um, uh, I said to him, oh, no problem. You know, I have loads and loads of poems about death, lots and lots of stories about death. I'll come in and I'll read some stories and poems about death. And then um, last night when I pulled out my stories and poems, I discovered I didn't have a single story or a poem about death. But I <laughs> what I had was a lot of love stories and a lot of love poems and a lot of stories about the unseen world and a lot of poems about the unseen world. So I brought them. And I'd like to share them with you. And just by way of introduction, to say a few words. Um, obviously, death is um, the opportunity to connect to the heart, to um, our own hearts, sometimes for the first time, to recognize uh, love for the first time, and to the hearts of others and to recognize the unseen web of love which surrounds us, even in the safe way, you know, and connects us uh, to other people, and to honor the love that we have been given, and recognize the power of our own love, and discover that because our love matters, that we matter, that we matter, and our lives matter, and everyone's life matters. Everyone's life makes a difference. You know, um, I used to think of the heart um, as a sort of a valentine, you know. Um, but I don't think that anymore. I think the heart is an organ of vision. It's a way of seeing the world, a way of experiencing life. And when you see the world with the eyes of the heart, you're able to see the meaning in the ordinary and in the daily, and especially in threshold events like birth and, and death. And in seeing that meaning, you recognize your own significance and the significance of life itself. One of the things that many people are surprised to learn at the edge of life when they meet other people at the edge of life, is that they are healers. Whether they are people who are moving on or people who are accompanying others who are moving on, you discover that your love has the power to heal other people, which is something that most of us have never had the opportunity to witness on a, in a daily way. So death, with all of its power, um, is the place where life becomes most visible. And obviously it's also the place where uh, mystery, spirit, becomes visible as well. Uh, the place in our terribly material culture, which is so focused on the acquisition of competence and mastery, that mystery, the mystery that surrounds us daily, becomes um, seen most clearly. You know, um, we are so focused on the material world <laughs> that it's so distracting 
that we have to be stopped by something as large as death before we can glimpse the immaterial nature of the world. And remember, you know, the timeless, unanswerable questions which form the nature of reality and also sustain our lives. You know, why are we here? What matters? Um, Where are we going? Where have we come from? So having said all of that, let me just start with love and by reading you one of my favorite poems, uh, which is a love poem written by Ted Kuser, who was the poet laureate of the United States a couple of years back. Um, And I'm going to read it. If you want me to read it again, I'll read it twice. Because for me, when when someone speaks truth to me, it's almost like having cold water thrown on you, you know. You can't take it all in at once. I I literally need to hear it twice in in order to hear it. So um, this is a poem called Mother. Mid-April already, and the wild plums bloom at the roadside, a lacy white against the exuberant, jubilant green of new grass and the dusty, fading black of burned-out ditches. No leaves, not yet. Only the delicate, star-petaled blossoms, sweet with their timeless perfume. You have been gone a month today, and have missed three rains and one night-long watch for tornadoes. I sat in the cellar from six to eight while the fat spring clouds went somersaulting, rumbling east. Then it poured, a storm that walked on legs of lightning, dragging its shaggy belly over the fields. The meadowlarks are back, and the finches are turning from green to gold. The same two geese have come to the pond again this year, honking in over the trees and splashing down. They never nest, but stay a week or two and then leave. The peonies are up, the red sprouts burning in circles like birthday candles. For this is the month of my birth, as you know. The best month to be born in, thanks to you. Everything ready to burst with living. There will be no more new flannel nightshirts sewn on your old black singer. No birthday card addressed in a shaky but businesslike hand. You asked me if I would be sad when it happened, and I am sad. But the iris I moved from your house now hold in the dusty, dry fists of their roots Green knives and forks, as if waiting for dinner, as if spring were a feast. I thank you for that. Were it not for the way you taught me to look at the world, to see the life at play in everything, I would have to be lonely forever. It would be hard to read these things without crying. This is beautiful. So discovering love, 
discovering the value of love, discovering what you have been given. Um, I thought I would also start with, um, and there's so many love stories. I'd start with one of the love stories as well, because this involves um, um, a woman from Bolinas. And I will just read this to you. This is a fairly long story. So let's see, page 255. It's called Giving Darshan. Giving Darshan. As you can see, I, I'm not going to read all those. <laughs> Dying people have the power to heal the rest of us in unusual ways. Years afterwards, many people can remember what a dying person has said to them and carry it with them through their lives. Perhaps dying people give a sort of darshan to the rest of us the way spiritual teachers do. The practice of darshan is very moving. The teacher sits before his disciples and throws out a shower of small pieces of candy and glazed fruit symbolic of the wisdom of his enlightened state. The students who catch the candies eat them and incorporate the sweetness of the guru's wisdom into themselves. The darshan we eat is woven into our fabric, as it were, and becomes a part of who we are. The sayings and perspectives of a dying person are often carried in this way, woven into our fabric, changing us from then on, helping us to live better. I carry in this way the death of a woman who in life had never been a close friend. She was outspoken and somewhat judgmental, and I had found her edge intimidating. Although I admired her work and we traveled in the same circles, I had always kept my distance. Even when I was told she'd been diagnosed with cancer, I did not personally call her, but thought about her and kept in touch with her struggle by calling mutual friends. Our paths had been converging for many years, but I had not known this. So I was surprised when her husband called me to say that Mary was dying and wanted to see me. Uncertain of why she had called, I went. The woman who welcomed me to her bedroom was no one I'd ever met before. Thin and completely bold, obviously gravely ill, her beauty was magnetic. As gracious as a queen, she patted her bed, indicating I was to climb in and sit. I remember the four hours that followed as one of the most intimate, strengthening, and healing times I have ever experienced. We spoke of illness and pain, and she said with simplicity that she was no longer suffering. We spoke of the complexity which had characterized her life and all of her relationships, both family and friends. We told each other jokes. At one point, her husband joined us, and we read Proverbs 31, a woman of valor together. It was a favorite of hers, and certain of the lines are with me still. She layeth her hands to the spindle, 
and her hands hold the distaff. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed with scarlet. We all drank Snapple, rolling it around in our mouths as if it were a fine wine. Part of our discussion turned around the power of this time of dying in a person's life. She had experienced the liberation from some lifelong limitations and self-doubts and felt she could now reach others in ways not previously possible. She felt grateful for this and for the clarity of vision that seemed to allow her to release her habit of anger and judgment and see the beauty in others. She wondered why this gift had been given to her now at this time, and if it were to be used in some way. I told her I felt that if it was, she'd be shown how to use it. As our time together ended, I felt reluctant to go, as if I had been granted an audience with a high lama. But it was only Mary. Eventually, she fell asleep in the middle of a sentence, and I left. A few days later, her husband called to say she'd gone into coma and asked if I wanted to come and say goodbye. Her house was very still and peaceful. Climbing the stairs to her bedroom once again, I had the sense of a holy silence that she had somehow drawn around her. Mary lay in her bed in a deep coma, breathing shallowly. I took her hand and sat with her for a while, thinking of our last conversation. Suddenly, her eyes were open. They were as clear as a young child's and as honest. In the intensity of her gaze, I felt naked, seen in all of my particulars and incompleteness. Yet I didn't feel embarrassed or even vulnerable. She looked at me in this way for a long, long time. And then she smiled gently and said, I love you. Closing her eyes, she slipped back into coma. I have carried the moment with me as a sort of touchstone. Her husband tells me that many of the people who came to see her after she went into coma had experiences similar to mine. She had opened her eyes and met with them in the same singular way, delivering the same last message. In looking back on it, it was a pure moment of intimacy, and the power of it cannot be easily described. I like to think of it as a sort of a null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is a research principle that applies only when one is studying universal laws and principles, forces that hold in all circumstances and at all times. It states that should one find only a single instance in which the law does not hold, the law itself, has been invalidated. There are laws of our inner world that bind each of us as firmly as gravity, beliefs we carry about ourselves and about life in general that we experience as true 
in all conditions and at all times, a feeling of personal unworthiness is one such inner law. One moment of unconditional love may call into question a lifetime of feeling unworthy and invalidate it. Perhaps these final moments with me and the others were a time of healing for Mary as well. After years of anger and self-doubt, the words of Proverbs had finally become true for her. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. You know, it is very difficult to recognize how profoundly we can affect the life of another person. Um, Sometimes in the most, in just a moment, in just a moment. Most of us don't believe our love matters. We don't um, have enough sense of self-worth to know how profoundly our love can affect other people. Um, Death is a time when you can discover that. And let me read you another poem, um, which I find very moving, about this discovery. And this is called What I Learned from My Mother, and it's Julia Kastorf. who um, I believe lives in Iowa. Yeah. Written in 1992. I learned from my mother how to love the living, to have plenty of vases on hand in case you have to rush to the hospital with peonies cut from the lawn, black ants still stuck to the buds. I learned to save jars large enough to hold fruit salad for a whole grieving household, to cube home canned pears and peaches, to slice through maroon grape skins and flick out the seeds with a knife point. I learned how to attend viewings, even if I didn't know the deceased, to press the moist hands of the living to look in their eyes and offer sympathy as though I understood loss even then. I learned that whatever we say means nothing. What anyone will remember is that we came. I learned to believe I had the power to ease pain materially like an angel. Like a doctor, I learned to create from another's suffering my own usefulness. And once you know how to do this, to every house you enter, you offer healing. A chocolate cake you baked yourself, the blessing of your voice, your touch. I want to read that one again. I think that one is so important. (laughs) Read it again. 
I learned from my mother how to love the living, to have plenty of vases on hand in case you have to rush to the hospital with peonies cut from the lawn, black ants still stuck to the buds. I learned to save jars large enough to hold fruit salad for a whole grieving household, to cube home canned pears and peaches, to slice through maroon grape skins and flick out the seeds with a knife point. I learned how to attend viewings, even if I didn't know the deceased, to press the moist hands of the living, to look in their eyes and offer sympathy as though I understood loss, even then. I learned that whatever we say means nothing. What anyone will remember is that we came. I learned to believe I had the power to ease pain materially, like an angel, like a doctor. I learned to create from another's suffering my own usefulness. And once you know how to do this, to every house you enter, you offer healing, a chocolate cake you baked yourself, the blessing of your voice, your touch. It's so interesting how often a lot of the truth that is spoken in this world is spoken by poets. Yeah. You know, the idea that uh, we're enough, that our presence is enough, that our presence makes a difference. Um, I wonder how many of us really know that. Uh, that it's possible, for example, to meet with death just by being present, just by listening. You know, our culture is so activist. Um, we're so into seeing the world as broken, in need of fixing, and we're so um, into acquiring the competency to fix it. Um, that when we are confronted in a situation where we, can, we can't prolong life, well, at least, you know, of course, our, we can fix death. I mean, that, that's our, our natural reaction. We can make it go well by certain standards. Uh, there's a good way to die and a bad way to die. Um, but this isn't the case at all. You know, death is natural. Every death has a meaning. And that meaning may, that meaning is, is mysterious. That meaning has to do with the individual soul of the person who is involved in the process of leaving and what it is they have come to do or say or learn. And your death is a natural process. There's a natural process of healing that goes on. If you allow yourself to be truly touched by death and not fix it, you too will be healed by it. And so maybe all we do need to do is to show up and to listen and to be present to the process and to trust it. So I want to share a number of stories about this. And the first one is one of the oldest stories in Kitchen Table Wisdom, not because it was written first, but because it happened 60 years ago almost. 
Um, and it's called silence. <clears throat> as an adolescent, I had a summer job working as a volunteer companion in a nursing home for the aged. The job began with a two-week intensive training about communicating with the elderly. There seemed to be a great deal to remember, and what had begun as a rather heartfelt way to spend a teenage summer quickly became a regimented, anxiety-filled set of techniques and skills for which I would be evaluated by the nursing staff. By the first day of actual patient contact, I was very anxious. My first assignment was to visit a 96-year-old woman who had not spoken for more than a year. A psychiatrist had diagnosed her as having senile dementia, but she had not responded to medication. The nurses, by and large, ignored her and rarely went into her room. They doubted that she would talk to me, but hoped that I could engage her in a mutual activity. I was given a large basket filled with glass beads of every imaginable size and color. We would string beads together. I was to report back to the nursing station in an hour. I didn't want to see this patient. Her great age frightened me, and the word senile dementia suggested that not only was she older by far than anyone I had ever met, she was crazy too. Filled with foreboding, I knocked on the closed door of her room. There was no answer. Opening the door, I, op I found myself in a small room lit by a single window which faced the morning sun. Two chairs had been placed in front of the window. In one sat a very old lady looking out. The other was empty. I stood just inside the door for a time, but she did not acknowledge my presence in any way. Uncertain of what to do next, I went to the empty chair and sat down, the basket of beads on my lap. She did not seem to notice that I was there. For a while, I tried to find some way to open a conversation. I was painfully shy at this time, which is one of the reasons my parents had suggested I take this summer job, and I would have had a hard time even in less difficult circumstances. The silence in the room was absolute. Somehow, it almost seemed rude to speak, yet I desperately wanted to succeed in the task that had been set for me. I considered and discarded all the ways of making conversation suggested in the training. None of them seemed possible. The old woman continued to look toward the window, her face half hidden from me, barely breathing. Finally, I simply gave up and sat with the basket of glass beads in my lap for the full hour. It was quite Peaceful. The silence was broken at last by the little bell, which signified the end of the morning activity. 
Taking hold of the basket again, I prepared to leave. But I was only 14, and curiosity overcame me. Turning to the old woman, I asked, What are you looking at? I immediately flushed. Prying into the lives of the residents was strictly forbidden. Perhaps she had not heard me. But she had. Slowly she turned toward me, and I could see her face for the first time. Her eyes were clear, and her face was radiant. In a voice filled with joy, she said, My child, I am looking at the light. Many years later as a physician, I would watch newborns look at light with the same rapt expression almost as if they were listening for something. Fortunately, I had not been able to find a way to interrupt. At 96, an old woman may stop speaking because arteriosclerosis has damaged her brain, or she may become psychotic and no longer able to speak. But she may also have simply withdrawn into a space between the worlds to contemplate what is next, to spread her sails and patiently wait to catch the light. When I returned to work three days later, she had gone. I had found her by accident or perhaps by grace. I have often wondered what would have happened had I been the highly trained technical physician I would shortly become. At that time, I would, have not, I would have not known how to find her and sit with her, how to learn from her about silence and trusting life. Now, many years later, I hope that I do. You know, um, simply listening to people at this this time of their lives can enable us to discover many deep wisdoms about how to live. And I, um, I want to read you another story um, which is connected to this story um, about my own mother. And this is... called Seeing Around the Corner. My given name is Rachel. I was named after my mother's mother. For the first 50 years of my life, I was called by another name, Naomi, which is my middle name. When I was in my middle 40s, my mother, who was at that time almost 85, elected to have coronary bypass surgery. The surgery was extremely difficult and only partly successful. For days, my mother lay with the two dozen others in the coronary intensive care unit of one of our major hospitals. For the first week, she was unconscious, peering over the edge of life, breathed by a ventilator. I was awed at the brutality of this surgery and the capacity of the body 
even at great age, to endure such a major intervention. When she finally regained consciousness, she was profoundly disoriented and often did not know who I, her only child, was. The nurses were reassuring. We see this sort of thing often, they told me. They called it intensive care psychosis and explained that in this environment of beeping machines and constant artificial light, elderly people with no familiar cues often go adrift. Nonetheless, I was concerned. Not only did mom not know me, but she was hallucinating, seeing things crawling on her bed and feeling water run down her back. Although she didn't seem to know my name, she spoke to me often and at length, mostly about the past, about her own mother who died before I was born and who was regarded as a saint by all who knew her. She spoke of the many acts of kindness which her mother had done without ever realizing she was being kind. Chesed, my mother said, using a Hebrew word, which roughly translates as loving kindness, the shelter offered to those who had none, the encouragement and financial support which helped others, often strangers, to win their dreams. She spoke of her mother's humility and great learning and of the poverty and difficulty of life in Russia, which she remembered as a child. She recalled the abuses and hatreds the family experienced, to which many others had responded with anger and bitterness, and her mother only with compassion. Days went by, and my mother slowly improved physically, although her mental state continued to be uncertain. The nurses began correcting her when she mistook them for people from her past, insisting that the birds she saw flying and singing in the room were not there. They encouraged me to correct her as well, telling me this was the only way she could return to what is real. I remember one visit shortly before she left the intensive care unit. I greeted her, asking her if she knew who I was. Yes, she said with warmth. You are my beloved child. Comforted, I turned to sit on the only chair in the room, but she stopped me. Don't sit there. Doubtfully, I looked at the chair again. But why not, Mom? I asked. Rachel's sitting there, she said. I turned back to my mother. It was obvious she saw quite clearly something I could not see at all. Despite the frown of the special nurse who was adjusting my mother's IV, I went into the hall and brought back another chair and sat down on it. My mother looked at me and at the empty chair next to me with great tenderness. Calling me by my given name for the first time, she introduced me to her visitor. Rachel, she said, this is Rachel. Her mother began to tell her mother Rachel, my mother began to tell her mother Rachel about my childhood and her pride in the person I had become. Her experience of Rachel's presence was so convincing that I found myself wondering why I could not see her. 
It was more than a little unnerving and very moving. Periodically, she would appear to listen. And then she would tell me of my grandmother's reactions to what she had told her. They spoke of people I never met in the familiar way of gossip. My great-grandfather David and his brothers, my great-granduncles who were handsome men and great horsemen. Devils, said my mother, laughing and nodding her head to the empty chair. She explained to my mother why she had given me her name, her hope for my kindness of heart, and apologized for my father who had insisted on calling me by my middle name, which had come from his side of the family. Exhausted by all this conversation, my mother lay back on her pillows and closed her eyes briefly. When she opened them again, she smiled at me in the empty chair. I'm so glad you are both here now, she said. One of you will take me home. Then she closed her eyes again and drifted off to sleep. It was my grandmother who took her home. This experience, disturbing as it was for me at the time, seemed deeply comforting to my mother and became something I revisited again and again after she died. I had survived many years of chronic illness and physical limitation. I had been one of the few women in my class at medical school in the 50s and one of the few women on the faculty at Stanford Medical School in the 60s. I was an expert at dealing with limitations and challenges of various sorts. I had not succeeded through loving kindness. Over a period of time, I came to realize that despite my successes, I had perhaps lost something of importance. When I turned 50, I began asking people to call me Rachel, my real name. You know, um, being present to the process of dying, being present to the process of living, um, is very little that, that enables us to know how to do this that even enables us to recognize the possibility of doing this. There are, I, when I went through the books and other files of stories, there were so many, <laughs> there were so many stories about the things that we do that get in the way of the natural process of death. Um, I'd like to read you two more stories about, about this. From, both of them involve my mother. And then briefly, um, just see what your thoughts are on this. Um, here's, here's another one, which is, I think, quite delightful. Um, my mother lived with me for four years before she died. Uh, I brought her here from New York because she was unable to live on her own when my father passed on. And it was a difficult and very challenging time. Um, Let's see, where is this? Oh, warm book, that's what it is. Okay. 
Yeah. But it had its moments. <laughs> this was one of them. Um, <laughs> my mother's response to her heart disease was, of course, another thing entirely. Um, oh, wait. Whoops, wrong. Wrong. That's the second one I want to read you. Here we go. Okay, this one's called Counting Your Chickens. When she was 84 and newly widowed, my mother had come from New York City to live with me. Frail and very sick with a heart condition, her physical needs were complex, and I had found her care overwhelming. Over and over, she had sudden attacks of pulmonary edema, a sort of internal drowning, from which I would rescue her by placing rotating tourniquets on her arms and legs and injecting her with morphine. On four occasions, she had a cardiac arrest in the living room. With the help of paramedics, I had resuscitated her each time and kept her going. In the last year of her life, these good people came to our house so often that I knew many of them by name. It was clear that time was running out, and I became concerned not only for my mother's physical well-being, but also for the state of her soul. She was not a religious woman, and what rituals she observed seemed more like superstition than spiritual practice. I had read somewhere about the importance of encouraging old people to reflect on their lives in order to die in peace. Without such remembering, it, was not, it would not be possible to receive and offer forgiveness, to uncover meaning, and to complete a life well. I did not know much about such things then, but I believed what I'd read, and I wanted the best for my mother. Yet every attempt I made to encourage her to reflect on her past and her relationships was rebuffed. Some of my friends were involved in spiritual practices of various sorts, and one by one I invited them over to talk with her about their spiritual <laughs> past. <laughs> A few even attempted to interest her in their ways. She listened politely to their enthusiastic discussions of such things as Tai Chi, mindfulness meditation, yoga, and Vipassana. But afterwards, she would tell me that meditation just not wasn't, just wasn't, just was, just was not for her. <laughs> it was too quiet, she said. As she became sicker, I became more intent on my agenda. A non-meditator myself, I even began to sit for 15 minutes in the morning and invited her to sit with me. Surprisingly, she agreed with enthusiasm, but every time I opened my eyes, I would find my mother looking at me with great love. <laughs> After a few weeks of this, I suggested that we abandon it, but she refused, <laughs> saying that she enjoyed having the chance to look at me for 15 minutes every morning. <laughs> Eventually, I just gave up. So I was overjoyed when one evening in the living room after dinner, my mother sighed and spontaneously closed her eyes 
for more than two hours. Once I had determined she was not asleep, I sat in silence with her all that time. When at last she opened her eyes and looked at me, I asked her what she had been doing. Why, I was counting my chickens, she said with a smile. Meeting my puzzled look with a laugh, she told me it had suddenly occurred to her as we were eating dinner, it was chicken, that she had eaten a chicken once or twice a week for many years. (laughs) She began to calculate this in her mind. (laughs) Two to three chickens a week, 52 weeks a year times 84 years, turned out to be more than (laughs) 8,500 chickens. (laughs) It seemed to be a great number of chickens just to keep one old woman alive. She had closed her eyes then to try to imagine what 8,500 chickens might look like. It had taken some time but she had finally gotten a picture of them in her mind. It had been overwhelming. All that innocent life, said my mother. She had begun to wonder whether she had been worth the sacrifice. And so she had begun to review her life, looking at at as many of her important relationships as she could remember examining her own heart and her motivations. It had taken a long time, but at the end, she had realized that while she was certain she had disappointed and even hurt people in the course of her life, she could not remember deliberately causing pain or harm to anyone, or resenting anyone else's good fortune, or hating anyone, or taking anything that was not hers, or even telling a significant lie. She smiled at me again. I believe I have been worthy of my chickens, Rachel, she said. (laughs) Life has an elegance that far exceeds anything we might devise. Perhaps the wisdom lies in knowing when to sit back and wait for it to unfold. Too hasty an activism may lead to lesser outcomes and, more important, may cause us to trust ourselves rather than learning to trust life. So let me stop here for a brief time because I think it's hard to be read to all that time. Any thoughts people have? Any thoughts people have? Anybody have any comments? I just wanted to share one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite teachers, Eckhart Tolle, who said in a, at a gathering, death is not the opposite of life. Life has no opposite. The opposite of death is birth. Life is eternal. Oh, that's wonderful. Could you say that again? Can everyone hear her? Can everyone hear her? Yeah, say it again. He said, Death is not the opposite of life. Life, death, ha- life has no opposite. The opposite of life, the opposite of death, is birth. Life is eternal. 
and that was um, well, that put everything in a whole different. All the times that I heard people talk about life and death, and suddenly every time I would hear that, I would say, "It's life and death. Mm -hmm. Life is eternal." Mm -hmm. One of the things I learned from my own parents' death that I hadn't been prepared for, the extent to which these people go on living. Mm -hmm. I, uh, okay. I had no idea that it would be like that. And, and when, when it happens, you, you kind of wish you knew it before, because they absolutely stay so real and so alive for so long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe even longer than we realize. Yes. I had the same experience as you did very recently as I heard that for the first time. Oh, here's someone with a voice as soft as mine. <laughs> I was just with my best friend as she passed over, and I had so many of the experiences you wrote about. Uh, she came out of a very deep coma at one point and just looked at me and smiled and said, I love being loved by you. <laughs> and then closed her eyes and boom, she was gone again, you know, with that experience. But I have also had that experience that he just spoke of, of since she passed, and just this feeling of kind of the way your mother was gazing at you, you know, when you were meditating. I just feel like I'm seeing myself more like God does in Hafiz's terms, and I know it's that gaze that my friend had, except I see it everywhere now. You know, what a wonderful thought. I think that in this work and in the opportunity to be with people, you know, at these times, we do get to see each other more like God does. Yeah. And to see life that way, too. And yet, the great majority of people avoid this kind of an, of, of an experience. You know, there are many, many people. I used to have a private practice in which I work with people with uh, severe cancer, usually. And so I've been present, and I would, I would literally be in their homes at the time that they died. Um, and I'd hear things like, you know, I expect that my friends would, would show up, and many people I expected to show up to be with me at this time are not there. They don't return my phone calls. They're, they're afraid, obviously. They're afraid of something. And then people who they hardly knew would step up and become a very large part of their lives. And there's a kind of a process, a kind of a readiness that we have to be big enough to, to experience life. And not everybody can do that. And how fortunate for your friend that you were there. Yeah. As well as for you. How fortunate for you. You know, she, just, she was pretty much healthy all the way until like the last couple of weeks. And then she went to the hospital found out she had fourth stage cancer. And she called me and she said, Oh, I don't need any healing. The cancer's not the enemy. Cancer's just here to do its part in the great transformation. Just, you know, it'd be great if you came and, you know, help to me through the pain so that it doesn't get too noisy. 
I'm not afraid of death, the pain scares me a little. <laughs> and, and she went with every moment just opening deeper, and that's, we just wrote every breath to see how, how much of the infinite, that vast openness that you could open to and kiss back. And that's how she went in her dying. I mean, it was just the most glorious days of my life, just with every breath and without present. It's extraordinary. How extraordinary. You know, I remember reading um, in one of Ram Dass's early books, he talks about the death of his mother and um, how he had always thought of her as a kind of a, a sort of a little old Jewish lady who nagged a lot. And that in the process of dying, in the way in which she died, he realized that she was a very high being who had come back to um, be a little old Jewish lady and had played that part perfectly. <laughs> and you know, there, there, is, there is something of that in your story. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. I just uh, wanted to say my, uh, my husband and I had uh, done transcendental meditation for a long time before we ever had uh, cancer. And when he came here to Commonweal for that retreat, he really learned that type of uh, meditation as well as yoga. And this became a real force with him and he did go to the uh, San Francisco Yoga Institute and became uh, a yoga teacher. And he had always been a very helpful person all his life. He was a teacher. But he even, in spite of his uh, uh, chemo and everything, he taught these classes in yoga and had such a, a response from people that came to him and said that this was just what they needed. They were on the verge of a uh, divorce and things changed for them doing this yoga. And um, I feel that he just found another way of helping people. And I think he died. It took, he, he was in a coma for a long time. But I felt that he died doing what he had always done, but in a different way. He learned a new way. And I think he died complete. Uh, I have a story that I'd like to share. Did, did everyone hear her? And, and I was very moved by what you just said about his dying complete. And I want to just share a story about that. Um, see if I'm, if I'm in the wrong, in the right book. Oh, I'm, I'm always in the wrong book. Just a second here. Wait a minute. Um, I think everybody dies complete which is a very un-American thing to say, because you know, we're, always, um, we're always trying to make things the way we think they're supposed to be. Uh, so let, let me just share this, this little story. My mother's response to her heart disease was another thing entirely. In, in, in the last part of her life, her heart condition became severe, and she would collapse unexpectedly in a cardiac arrest. In the year before she died, this happened several times in our home. 
I remember one of these terrible occasions in particular, seeing her fall to the living room floor without a pulse, resuscitating her with the help of the 911 paramedics, and putting her to bed, only to find her walking towards the door an hour later in her hat and her gloves. Where are you going, Mom? I gasped. She gave me her best smile. To the Holy Redeemer, bingo, bingo is it too, she said. <laughs> and she left. <laughs> she was under the care of one of my friends, who's a brilliant cardiologist. With great skill, he undertook the med medical management of her heart with a carefully and ingeniously designed regimen of new and powerful cardiac drugs. She took four medications in the morning and five or six at night. From the beginning, I had, he had suggested that I leave things in his hands and simply be my mother's daughter. It was good advice, and I was able to follow it for about a week. <laughs> Resolutely, I would pass um, the copy, my copy of the physician's desk reference on my office shelves several times every day. But of course, my resolve faltered, and after 10 days, I took the PDR down and began to read. I was concerned to discover that some of the drugs my mother was taking completely disabled the sensitive feedback mechanisms that enabled the normal heart to function. In effect, my mother's heart was being completely controlled by her doctor's choice of drugs. And furthermore, according to the PDR, several of the newer drugs were unforgiving and had to be taken at precisely the right time in order to help and not harm the patient. One of them, a dilator of the coronary arteries, would reverse its effect if even a single dose was missed, causing the coronary arteries to constrict and, and precipitate a heart attack. I was horrified. At 85, my mother was, to say the least, absent-minded. What if she forgot to take a pill or became confused and took two? What then? Because of her age and her illness, I had brought my mother from New York to California to live with me. She kept her many bottles of heart medications in a little drawer in our kitchen next to the kitchen sink. Twice a day, she would open this drawer and lay out a dose of several drugs. She had been doing this alone for a few weeks, but that was before I read the PDR. <laughs> The next morning at 8 a.m., I was standing next to her as she prepared to take her morning dose. Remember the blue one, Mom, I said in the most casual way that I could manage, and two orange ones. That evening, I was there again as she measured out the second set of pills. Half of a green one, I murmured, and only one yellow one. <clears throat> this went on for a few weeks until one morning, just after I had once again commented on the blue pill, my mother turned to face me. Drawing herself up to her full height of five foot two, she looked me in the eye. Rachel, she said, do you know that I will die when it is my time? <laughs> <laughs> 
Not one second before and not one second after. And when that happens, you'll probably tell yourself some sort of story. It was because she forgot the yellow one <laughs> or because she took two blue ones. But that will not be the real reason at all. Extending a palmful of pills towards me, she asked, you don't think that these things can outwit God, do you? But I had. For a long, long moment, I looked at my mother's old arthritic hand, filled with brightly colored pills of many shapes and sizes. Then I looked into her eyes. They were brimming with laughter and something deeper, perhaps compassion. She smiled at me in exactly the same way that she would smile at my father just before she would declare gin and lay down her head. <laughs> then something released me and I began to laugh. Many years afterwards, I heard a Tibetan Lama address the same issue in a far different language. We die not because we are ill, but because we are complete, he told his Dharma class. Illness is the occasion of our dying, but not the cause. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about mystery and about questions. Um, you know, death, um, the presence of death, presence of death uh, invites us to live beyond ourselves, to wonder beyond ourselves, to look between the obvious and between the material aspects of our lives. Um, and you know, this is not a culture that is comfortable with questions and with the unknown. Um, often we are so headlong in our pursuit of mastery that we have, um, we've impoverished our lives because we don't allow for the mystery that is present in daily life and we, we don't even recognize it when, it, when it, it's right there for us. And I thought um, I would share some of the mystery stories. Um, the times when we are, we are confronted by mystery um, at the edge of life. It's one of the places where we can see mystery most clearly. It's harder to see um, as you're rushing down the freeway. So let me just share a couple of these. Um, because I think death reminds, remind, reminds us to wonder. And you know, people who wonder um, don't burn out. So I want to just share a couple of these. Um, here is one that was told to me in a doctor's workshop um, by a doctor in our community in Mill Valley. Um, let's see if I've got the right page. 
I actually don't. Let me tell it to you then instead of reading it to you. Um, this was told by Mark Wexman, who is a cardiologist and who has given me permission to tell his story using his real name. Often the names in the books are, are not real. Um, it happened when he was a, a youngster, he was a teenager, maybe about uh, 15 or 16. And at that time, his dad had Alzheimer's disease, and he had had Alzheimer's disease for probably about um, 10 years. And for most of that time, um, he had been a kind of a walking vegetable. And Mark's mother had cared for her, her husband with, with great devotion. Um, even bathing him and feeding him. Uh, but as, as um, her boys got older, sometimes they would, they would stay with him for an afternoon and give her a chance to get out with her friends. And the story happened uh, at one of those times. It was a Sunday, Mark said. Uh, and he and his brother, who was a couple years older, were sitting uh, in the living room with their father, uh, and they were watching the football game. And Dad was sitting in a chair over in a corner, absolutely immobile, which had been his way, you know, absolutely immobile. And as they were sitting watching the game, suddenly they heard a very peculiar sound, and they turned to look, and their father had clutched his chest, and very slowly he pitched forward onto the rug. And both these teenagers, you know, ran to him, and Mark said he knew immediately something was wrong because his father was gray and sweating and he couldn't seem to breathe right. And his brother looked afraid, and he had never seen his older brother look afraid before. And his older brother said to him, Mark, call 911, call 911. But before he could get up off the rug, a voice that he hadn't heard in 10 years, a voice that he couldn't even remember barely, said to him, no, son, don't call 911. Tell your mother that I love her. Tell your mother I'm OK. And his father stopped breathing and died there, right in the living room. Right. Now, this happened in New Jersey a number of years ago. And at that time, the law was that if someone died um, with, who was not under active medical care, you had to have a post-mortem exam. So at, at autopsy, um, Mark told us that his father's brain had been completely destroyed by this terrible disease. So he was left with a question, right? Who spoke? Who spoke? And he said, you know, there's nothing in any medical textbook or, or in the medical literature that has ever helped him with this question, has ever given him any insight on the question. But he carries the question with him because it has changed the way he sees every human being, the way he sees every patient, the way he sees himself. And you know, sometimes carrying a question, an unanswerable question, can enable us to live very well. Right? Um, 
Sometimes the questions we carry from times of dying are very painful. And there is a little story about this that I find very moving that I wanted to share also. Um, this is about the death, the death of a little boy. Um, okay. Befriending life often requires accepting and experiencing loss. There's no question that great loss may have a deep meaning and may indeed transform those touched by its terrible grace. But it's foolish to think that spiritual growth will somehow remove loss, much in the same way an aspirin removes pain. Spiritual awakening doesn't change life. It changes suffering. The Zen Buddhists say, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. The loss is the same, only the meaning changes. And as the meaning evolves, the suffering may become less, but the loss will last forever. I remember the memorial service that was offered for this little boy, Timmy, a gathering of a few hundred shocked and grieving people. The Quaker minister who spoke to us was only slightly older than Timmy's parents and was himself the father of a little boy. He did not tell us this was a beautiful experience. Instead, he pointed to the pain in the room, encouraging each of us to allow it to touch us in our own way and to know that we are not alone in being touched. The pain would help us to love our children. It would remind us to love each other. He told us that Timmy was not replaceable. Nothing important ever is. He reminded us that the life in every person is unique. And he pointed to the mystery. Why should a little boy suffer and die? He asked us to listen for the question now that we had, now, that we now had in our hearts, because Timmy had died. Does God exist? Does life have a purpose? Does love go on forever? Does it matter? He encouraged us to hold those questions close and follow them, to begin a dialogue with the world about them, to measure the events of of all of our lives against them. These questions would help us move closer to life, to know life more intimately. Looking out over the hushed gathering, his own eyes filled with tears, he wondered aloud, if perhaps that was the wisdom. As I sat there grieving, an odd question laid its hand on my shoulder. It was not the sort of question that could support a PhD thesis or become the focus of scientific research. Such questions must be capable of answers. It was my grandfather's kind of question, the kind that is in itself a source of strength. Is it possible that there may be an unknowable purpose to life itself? At that moment, there was a great silence around this question. There is a great silence around it still. 
Yet having it has enabled me to work with people with life-threatening illness and accompany them to the edge of life year after year and love life, even so. Even so. And of course, in the presence of people who are approaching the end of their lives, one experiences um, happenings that can only be described as mystery. And as a um, doctor, I was trained to, to deal with the unknown very much in the way um, one might deal with, with a hemorrhage. You know, it's an emergency. We need to make the unknown as known as possible. And if we can't make it known, we have to tell ourselves stories about it. But simply being in the presence of the unknown is strengthening. Perhaps the wisdom is not having all the answers, but pursuing unanswerable questions in good company. And so I want to read you a couple of, actually I'll tell you a story and then read you a story as well. And um, this story was actually told us um, in a session at UCSF by a very matter-of-fact woman which is, who is a crackerjack researcher in the nursing uh, department. Uh, a professor and um, PhD of nursing uh, at UCSF. And it's the story of her first day um, on the ward as a neophyte nurse. And uh, she showed up on the ward, met her mentor, nurse, and entered the patient's room together with her mentor just as the patient had a cardiac arrest. And the mentor called the code. And as she, t- she was telling this to a group of chaplaincy um, students. Right? And um, when the mentor called the code, and she said it seemed to her as if the room filled in seconds with people and machines, um, people of great skill and determination. And they were shouting orders to one another and carrying them out flawlessly. And someone slipped a board under the patient on the bed. And in seconds, they surrounded him. And she couldn't see him anymore. There were so many people crowded around the bed. But she could see the EKG monitor. And the line of it was absolutely flat. And she was completely overwhelmed by all this action and this emergency. Um, And she backed into a corner of the room and and simply stood there feeling numb. And she said she could feel her own heart, you know, beating um, in her chest. And her palms were sweaty. And, of course, this, this man was dying right in front of her. And she felt absolutely powerless to help powerless to help. And suddenly, she, she felt she could never do what these people were doing. She knew she could never know enough. She could never be skilled enough. She could never be courageous enough. And with horror, she realized she'd chosen the wrong profession. All of those years of study, she was simply the wrong person. And the code was successful. Right? 
And afterwards, she had gone home absolutely drained. And that night, she'd been unable to sleep. She was a failure. How would she tell this to her friends, to her parents, who were so proud of her, who had made such sacrifices? She was the wrong person. And she had let them all down. And she had wanted to simply run away. But she was expected on the ward the next day, so she went. And she actually went early, because she wanted to go for a moment to this patient's room to see for herself you know, that he was all right. And he was sitting up in bed when she walked into her room. He was sitting up in bed, eating jello. <laughs> and as soon as he saw her, he said, oh, hello, there you are. I remember you from yesterday. And she was stunned. She said, I didn't know you saw me. And he said, oh yeah, I saw it all. You know, I was up there. And he pointed to the ceiling. He says to her, so many people. They were all so busy. <laughs> Nobody noticed me at all. He said, and I could feel myself sort of drifting away. He said, but then I saw you in the corner over there. And he pointed to the corner where she had actually been standing. And then he looked at her and he said, I could feel you. I could feel how much you wanted it to be OK for me and how much you, you cared. I could feel you reaching out to me and holding on to me. So I just took hold of you and I held on. which I think, for me, is one of the most beautiful of the love stories that I have. And it brings us back once again to love and the power of love. You know? One of the things about mystery is we wonder, you know, what's next? Is there anything next? Um, what, what is lineage? What is, um, what is immortality? Is there such a thing, you know? Um, and, you know, in the simplest way, of course there is. Uh, what you said before is that how people are still here. Let me read you a little poem on that, because that's one level of mystery. But then there's a lot more things that happen that can't be very easily explained. But this little little poem is by Eric Mortensen, and it's called Cataloging Mistakes. And it probably should be read in one big, long breath, but I'm not able to do it. It goes like this. And there was the time her father died, and she asked me where I thought souls go afterwards. And I said, why do they have to go anywhere? Maybe they died too and are finally at peace. And what makes you think we have a soul anyway? Maybe when we die, we die, and that's it, and that's all. And sometimes dead is better, and wasn't that true for him? And then she just cried harder than before, but quieter. And I knew she would the whole time I was saying this, but I couldn't stop myself. I don't know what made me think it would be helpful, that it would actually be a comfort to her. But I just couldn't say what she wanted, like that souls go to heaven and watch over us. 
But even worse was what I never thought to say at all, which was that his soul was in the way she held her chin just there, and in the curls of her hair, and in the gold flecks of the blue of her eyes, and in her mouth when she peeled and cut and ate a pear with a slim knife, and her thumb, and that his soul was in her heart when she asked me the question in the first place. Yeah, and then there are those other things that happen. And let me read you, um, if I can find my, my way again here. Let me read you one of those. And again, I realize I've chosen a lot of stories about my mother. Um, rather than other people who I have actually been with, but... Um, I wanted to speak personally, because for me, the the thing about death is that it's intimate. I think it's more intimate than sex. I think it's more intimate than anything. And when we allow it to be intimate, it, it allows us to become intimate with life. So, I was late for what was to be my last visit with my mother. Pushing through rush hour traffic, tired tired from a long day at the office, I had stopped to buy her some flowers. It was seven in the evening, and the florist had no purple irises, my mother's favorites, and little of anything else. Sympathizing with my distress, he offered me a bouquet of of half-closed iris buds from his icebox, assuring me that they would open in a few hours. I took them and waited, irritated and impatient, as he wrapped them in green tissue, a strange-looking bouquet. Then I hurried on. Carrying the flowers, I pushed through the heavy doors of the ward. A nurse was waiting there for me. I'm so sorry, she said. My mother had died a short time before. Stunned, I allowed myself to be led to her room. She lay in her bed, seemingly asleep. Her hands were still warm. The nurse asked me if there was anyone I wanted her to call. Numbly, I gave her the numbers of some of my oldest friends and sat down to wait. It was peaceful and very still in the room. One by one, my friends came. Four days later, I was 3,000 miles away, arranging for my mother's burial. It was an unseasonably hot spring, and New York City was at its worst, muggy and uncomfortable. The funeral director was a person of sensitivity and kindness. Gently, he went over the arrangements, assuring himself and me again of the details of my mother's wishes, which we had discussed on the phone. Then he paused. There was something that came from California with your mother. May I show you, he asked. Together we walked down the corridor to where my mother lay in her closed pine coffin. Lying on the coffin lid, still in a twist of green tissue paper, 
was the bouquet I had left in my mother's hospital room on her bed. But now the irises were in full bloom. I remember them with great clarity, each one huge and vibrant, seemingly filled with a purple sort of light. They had been out of water for five days. It would be easy to dismiss this sort of experience, not to make a simple shift in perspective or find a willingness to suspend belief for, disbelief for a moment, not to consider adding up the column of figures in another way and wondering. The willingness to consider possibility requires a tolerance of uncertainty. I will never know whether or not I was once for a moment in the presence of my Russian grandmother, or if my mother used my final gift of flowers to make me a gift of her own, letting me know that there may be more to life than the mind can understand. So, any thoughts on this? Any thoughts on this? Anybody? Well, I am. I, I have something, something. I have a friend who's dying now, and I have been a very good friend to this person, and he's in Kaiser in San Francisco. And I was the second on them to call this for an emergency. And he has lung cancer, he's had it, and and um, now he's died. Okay. So his daughter is there, and the grandchildren are coming, and I'm there. And I noticed that um, he's there, and the bed is too short, and he's uncomfortable, and he has an oxygen mask and fluid. I think it's a sucrose just now. And, um, so they took the oxygen mask off for a little bit so that um, I said I'd like to be able to talk a little bit. And, um, and also I talked to him and I did say, um, did he want anything? Did he want a book? Could I bring a book and read to him? And he said, yes. He said, um, I couldn't understand. I said, mystery? No, 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 history. He loves history. So I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going back Tuesday and I'll bring my part of the books. But um, I noticed he hadn't eaten anything, and Rachel, his daughter, Rachel, had said, no, 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 he's not eating, no. But no one had tried. I mean, and there was a little pack of apples, cut up apples, and I broke it open. And I said, John, here, and I just put it in his mouth, and I put his hand on the apple. He painted. What's wrong with everybody? Why aren't they doing these things? And um, he just had cookies, dried cookies, and everything. So anyway, then I left, you know. And um, I said to Rachel this morning or yesterday or something, "Well, I'm coming back with a book about history, and I'll bring some fruit, so like watermelon or something that he'd like." She said, "No," she said. He's almost at the end. She said, you said your goodbye. And I 
said, oh, terrible. And I emailed my friend who would understand. And she said, no, Marty, go, go, go back. Try to go maybe when Rachel isn't there. Yes. And um, by listening to you now, I know I'm going to go and sit there. And I'll take my book if he wants me to read it. You know, interesting. Interesting. You don't have to sit in the same room to sit with him. Oh, I think you should go too. But you don't need to sit in the same room because I, I, my, there are so many other stories I could tell you about that. But if you just come in front of your house and the house and sit in your car. Or if you sat in your own house, you can sit with him. So don't let yourself be stopped, is what I would say. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing some of these stories. Um, I've come with my 16-year-old son, because as soon as I heard you were going to be speaking today, which was, I guess, when you first put the announcement out, I felt we don't have a chance in our community, kind of in the valley, to be able to have an intergenerational dialogue about conversations that matter. Right. Yeah. And it's important to me that we live in a <coughs> amazing place on this planet that we all are very appreciative of and in many ways take for granted. But to be able to have these moments of storytelling and um, understanding and reflection and wisdom it's hard to find that in a community, how we do that, and how we set that up in a multi-generational way. So I came because we're involved in an initiative that's trying to look at various ways to have an intergenerational dialogue on conversations that matter. And I'd love to chat with you later about that. But I also would love to find out if you've had an opportunity to be in public speaking events where it's been intentionally sought to bring in different generations to sit to share wisdom, to reflect about a life well lived. Thank you for asking that. You know, one of the neatest things that happened to me, um, I had never written anything until I was 56. And so all this was like, whoa, <laughs> right? And I ended up going on a book tour. And you go to bookstores, little bookstores, and of course the, many of them are no longer there even, you know. But they were little bookstores and people came to hear you read, to do this kind of thing, which I have not done for many, many years. And the people who came were of all different ages. And we would have discussions. I think people brought their children. I was amazed. Uh, people as young as eight, elderly people came. I would walk in and there would be this group of people and you know it would be in many ways the same sort of people. I think it depends what kind of book you write. If you write a book about you know how to smell good you get the people who are interested in smelling good and if you write a book of these kinds of stories you get somebody else. And it was such an amazing thing. Um, I had a completely different sense about America at the end of this, and about families, and about people, you know, young people and old people. Um, <clears throat> I would go into a place where I'd say to myself, I don't feel real comfortable here. 
I mean, this is the kind of place where before I sit down, someone's going to ask me if I'm saved. You know, and I feel a little nervous, you know, about that and, and all of this. And um, it would always be the same audience, and they would always, most of what happened, it, the, the story is like dropping a seed into a supersaturated solution, and then this beautiful crystal would appear. And it would appear from the people. Most of what was said was said by the people who came. And it was, it, I encourage you to do this. It, it's life-giving. Yeah. And many of the teachers were the very young people. Some of the things that young people have to say are profound, absolutely profound. Yeah. So I'm getting close here, but I would like to um, share one more story if I can find it. Um, Let me get a shot at trying at this. I did it. Look at that. (laughs) You know, we started by talking about love and about mystery and presence um, and that we're enough. That's the biggest secret in America. We are enough to make a difference. Uh, We matter just exactly who we are. We don't have to be younger or prettier or less wrinkled or more educated, or anything like this. We matter just because we are human. Um, and you know, this, this business of, of showing up, of just being present and witnessing, when we witness something that's true for another person, they can recognize it as true for them for the first time. We affirm that something is true simply by being there and and sharing it and witnessing it. Um, So there's a little poem about this that I think for me is the wisdom of being not only with dying people but with anybody else. Because all these things we're learning about how to be with people um, are not for the dying. It's for us. It's for everybody. Um, And it it goes like this. You know, the most remarkable person wrote this, William Butler Yeats. When I read it, you're going to be floored that he wrote this. And to me, this is the formula, if there is such a formula. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. Let me read that one again. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. 
And let me just read a final mystery story. Because, and this is, uh, those of you who are therapists, or often something speaks through people. They think it has one meaning, it has another meaning. Sometimes, especially at the end of life, the soul of a person will speak to you absolutely directly. And the person themselves is saying the words, but they, it's not quite, how can I put this? It's very hard to describe, but it's as if the soul is speaking to them as well as to you. And I have one story about this. And I think it's a, a story for us all because it's about finding safety. And you know, we feel unsafe in our culture. We have felt unsafe in our culture for many, many years. We're becoming more and more unsafe in our culture. And uh, much of our lives are devoted to keeping ourselves safe and keeping the people who we love safe. And this is a, a wonderful story for us. Bill was an internationally known architect of the many award-winning buildings he had designed and built, I had only seen a picture of one. It stands on a hilltop above a vineyard in Northern California, made of iron pipe with a wooden platform as a floor and completely open walls. It is topped by an iron cross. The most minimal of structures it is also one of the most powerful statements imaginable of the capacity of a building to enclose space in a way that allows us to see space as sacred. Shortly after he built it, Bill and his wife had been married in it. But I did not know Bill through his work. I knew him through the integrity with which he fought for his life and ultimately met with his death. A life is made up of many stories. Bill told this story to his wife Mary and me late one afternoon as we sat on either side of his hospital bed in the little study of his home. At the time, he was desperately sick with prostate cancer and waiting to find out if his latest tests would show there was further treatment available for him. It did not seem likely the house was still, and as we sat together, I could feel the weight of his wife's anxiety and Bill's as well. This struggle had gone on for a long time. I felt a longing for a place of ease and safety, just a few moments of respite. I imagine that we all did. As he lay in bed between us, struggling to breathe, I asked Bill if he could remember a place where he had felt safe. Without hesitation, he began to describe his childhood home, the fields and the woods, the sounds of the birds at sunrise. And then he remembered a story. The story is Bill's oldest memory. It happened in rural New Jersey more than 50 years ago when he was four or five years old and living in a house reached by a dirt road that ran alongside a small river. 
Often in the spring, the river would flood. Once, soon after a flood, Bill was walking along the road and found a rainbow trout washed up from the river, struggling to live in a drainage ditch behind, beside the road. Small as he was, he was horrified. As he described it, it seemed to him that there was something very wrong about this beautiful fish, trapped and struggling in too small, too shallow, too muddy a place. He was just a little boy, and it was a big fish, but somehow he managed to get it up into his arms. He carried it across the road and waded out into the river a little ways and put it back. Deeply moved, I asked him what he remembered most clearly about this. He said he remembered the moment when the fish between his hands realized it was once again a part of the river. There are many meanings to every story. On one level, this is a beautiful childhood memory shared by a very sick man. On another, it is a story about a man whose compassion goes back to his very beginnings. But I think there may be deeper readings still. Certain practices run through all the branches of Buddhism. One of these is a practice done to celebrate enlightenment and the promise of spiritual freedom. At such times in China, Japan, Nepal, and Korea, live fish are bought at the market, taken to bodies of running water, and set free. These fish symbolize the possibility of a return to the source and the great freedom, which is our true refuge and our home. There is also a Buddhist teaching concerning the death of a teacher one who has accumulated the power to free others and help them to live well. The death of such a one is called taking on the rainbow body, and it is believed that the physical body of such men and women somehow become a rainbow of light. Bill was not a Buddhist. He didn't know any of this intellectually. He was an architect, a vintner, a fly fisherman, a sailor, a friend, a husband, and a father. But there was in him, as there, was in us, as there is in us all, something that went deeper than all these things, an unconscious part that was very old. If you were quiet and listened, sometimes without Bill's knowing, it would speak to you directly. And so... As we were waiting together, anxious and fearful, hoping to find that further treatments were available, I think that this part of him told the three of us this story. Perhaps it spoke to us so that we could understand where Bill truly was in his life, or even more important, so that we would know that despite appearances, all was well. Over many years of listening to people with cancer, their dreams, their poems, their stories, I have come across many images for the soul, some conscious and, and many unconscious. I think that the rainbow trout is one of the most beautiful. 
So it's just a few minutes of four, and let me close with um, the bottom line on love and death, which is a very short poem by Raymond Carter, which he wrote, as I understand it, within a day or two of his own death. And he says, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? Yes, I did. And what was that? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this earth. So, thank you.